Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And we are pastors together at Ammon Valley Christian Reformed Church, and this is uh, our weekly podcast where we just love to sit down and talk with each other about different things that are going on in the life of our congregation mm-hmm. uh, here at Ammon Valley and in the greater Ripon world and really in the life of our denomination the and even world. the broader Reformed <laughs> tradition yes the Rippin world the Rippin is its own little world it is everybody who knows Rippin knows that it is its own little world uh, for better or for worse even um, if you drive past it you probably see that's a different looking place <laughs> yes I, I can remember driving through Rippin even as a as a young kid because uh, we would often go from Kingsburg my hometown about two hours south of here and drive up to Sacramento and so I'd always I always thought and Ripon looked interesting because of its water tower. Yep. That's what I remember right on the freeway on the 99. Um, and I also had an uncle who grew up in Ripon. I didn't really ever come and visit him in Ripon because hmm. uh, they had moved away by that point. But he actually still has some family here in Ripon. Oh. Uh, oh, fun little fact for all you Ripponites out there who are <laughs> listening. Um, but uh, yeah, so today we're going to be talking well about the reformation a little bit and about mm-hmm. the creeds and the confessions that come out of the reformation uh if you're wondering why t- today is the day for that well uh, this sunday actually is reformation sunday uh in the christian reformed church and various other protestant bodies which celebrate it as well uh, i guess lutherans probably cel- celebrate it mm-hmm. liturgically mm-hmm. i don't know if anglicans do um yeah so it was the famed day of Luther uh, nailing his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany uh, in 1517. That's a, at least according to tradition. Mm. Uh, I just had a fun time talking all about that story this past Sunday uh, for the Sunday school class that I teach for our adults here. Um, it's interesting to me that Luther posted those, those theses in Latin and they were only translated into German by a group of young scholars. Mm. Luther was not trying to start up, up a huge debate in the church per se. He was just trying to stir up academic conversation. Mm. But that's a little tidbit of history, perhaps for another time. I'm, I'm looking forward to tonight, Wednesday night, for a youth group. We have our Reformation Day party. And so I would dress up as I do every year as Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, and we eat a bunch <laughs> of sausages to celebrate Zwingli's sausage protest uh, during the Lenten season, um, and we do other strange things. But uh, it's going to be a good time. Mark, how are you doing? Pretty well. Uh, it's been uh, in ministry, I would say, a, a very busy but overall <laughs> an encouraging little season here i mean hmm. we've had some sadness in our own church with yeah. uh somebody passing away uh from covid and it was a, a very shocking situation and somebody who's related to a lot of people in our church and so that was yeah. very very sad and we had that memorial service this past saturday and and so those are always sober moments um kind of solemn times in the life of the church but also um seeing that family what appears to me to be grieving quite well, actually, to be really honest about their emotions and hmm. um, a lot of hugs at the graveside and um, a lot of real sadness there, which actually as a pastor is kind of assuring to me that people are really thinking hard about things. Um, yeah. And uh, then, yeah, in addition to that, just doing regular ministry things, uh, getting ready for chapel at Rip and Christian tomorrow and uh, I get to do a lot of those cool things. I, I would guess um, at times I might may feel them to be a burden, but um, I always actually have to pinch myself a little bit and say I get to do this for my job. That's pretty great. So, um, yeah, overall, pretty good, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I've often had that conversation with my wife about how cool is it that I get to do this yeah. for 
my quote job. Sure. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and I really enjoy what I do. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's very refreshing. And today we get to talk about something that is very near and dear to my heart, the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation, and particularly creeds and confessions. Mm-hmm. Um, these are very, very important subjects, uh, the life and the place of creeds and confessions in the church for today. Uh, what's their use? What are they about? What do they do? How do they function in the church? Um, and how are they helpful for the everyday Christian in the pew? Uh, those are the co- kind of questions we, we want to get at. So maybe it would be good to start with a distinction, drawing a distinction between what creeds and confessions and even catechisms are. Mm-hmm. Um, so creeds, I'll start, I'll just say creeds sort of are the baseline foundational statements of Christian faith. Uh, stemming from the earliest periods of the of the Christian Church, um, from the first five centuries, so that that sort of patristic uh, period. Um, so, of course, the more the most, I don't know, uh, highly lauded creed is probably the Apostles' Creed, at least in the Western Latin-speaking mm-hmm. part of the Church. Um, I don't think the Apostles' Creed qu- plays quite the same role in mm-hmm. the orthodox the eastern orthodox church as it does in the western the roman and protestant churches um although it would still be regarded quite highly i think um then there's also the nicene creed which is sort of the expansion of that which is really i think uh some of the most core statements Mm -hmm. of the christian faith about who god is what he has done in creation and redemption and what god will do uh, in the future, in his return, in the return of Christ. Um, and so in that sense, the Nicene Creed is sort of like the cliff notes of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. It gets at all of the basic things that, that the Bible seeks to address and, and, and uh, tells us about. And then we have the confessions. So what do the confessions do in regards to the creeds? How would you explain that to someone? Uh, well, both of them interpret Scripture, and so I think it's helpful to think of both of them in that way where uh, the apostles Nicene and Athanasian creeds are brief interpretations um, very skeletal summaries of the main doctrines of scripture Hmm. and then in the confessions you find a lot more of that fleshing out to stay with the Mm -hmm. skeletal analogy um, of various points of doctrine so uh, in many confessions even are based on the Apostles' Creed. And so there's a Hmm. very large portion, I would even venture, I guess, most of the Heidelberg Catechism is answering questions about the Apostles' Creed. So Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean? Or why why does it mention that Jesus was buried? Mm -hmm. Well, he was buried because he actually died. You know, that's just one of the shortest answers. And what does it mean that God is our Father? Yeah, and so um, the the Catechism... uh, fills out more of our understanding about not just the creed, but scripture. Um, Hmm. And so Luther's catechism is commentary on the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Um, Hmm. The Heidelberg Catechism follows very much the same structure, um, structures it in a little bit of a different way, which I think is maybe more helpful for Reformed theology, thinking Hmm. about starting with guilt and then moving to grace and then... um, Putting the Ten Commandments in the gratitude section of the yeah, uh, the, so just the structure of a catechism will help you understand the basics of the Christian faith, mm-hmm. um, and uh, catechisms predate the Reformation. Sometimes people are surprised to hear that there was a Catholic <laughs> catechism before that, and um, there are other catechisms outside of our Heidelberg Catechism, mm-hmm. uh, Lutheran, obviously the Westminster Confession, um, the Genevan Catechism, and. Uh, yeah. And so they are helpful, they are interpretive, um, they are faithful in their interpretation of Scripture um, to the extent that, that they are biblical. And so obviously here in the Reformed context, we would say that the Catholic Catechism is not a faithful interpretation of Scripture in all cases, especially where it continues to teach that indulgences are um, a good hmm. idea. and. Uh, useful yeah, for yeah transubstantiation as well and 
um, how e- ecclesiology, how the church is the place structured. Of the Pope. Yeah, and so uh, we believe in the Christian Reformed Church, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort are faithful interpretations of Scripture um, until mm-hmm. proved otherwise, and occasionally the wording of the Catechism will change as we understand more and more about Scripture, hmm. but uh, we we hold them to be very, very helpful. Yeah, so I, I think the way that I, I've often described the, the sort of connection of the creeds, catechisms, and confessions would be to say that creeds give us the rough outline of the Christian faith. The confessions really come in and give it all the color and detail. Hmm. Um, they really explain in, in, in much longer language. A creed is maybe a couple hundred words, mm-hmm. the Nicene Creed being one of the longer ones, or the Athanasian being Athanasian, quite long as yeah. well. Um, but those are still quite short in comparison to the, let's say, the Belgic Confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Belgic Confession is quite long, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you, If you were to do, do a word count, it would be thousands of words. Yeah, every article is hundred. longer than the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of giving the like the coloring in it's explaining even the teaching of the apostles creed in some ways mm-hmm. um, and then the catechisms are used primarily for a teaching function um, they are used prim- and especially for young christians uh, that can mean both age a young child who's a christian or a young, like a new Christian, mm-hmm. uh, being taught what the Christian faith is all about. The catechisms are useful for that sort of more personalized discipleship. Um, while it could be still helpful for a, a an adult convert to read the Belgic Confession, it may be better for them to start with uh, learning the ins and outs of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so that is how these three things function together. And so it's good to start um, with that sort of understanding. So then we can move on to our, our next question, which we should address, which would be uh, having to do with why creeds and confessions are important. Uh, some people would say, I don't need any creed or confession. I just need the Bible. Uh, no creed but Christ. No creed but the Bible. That is actually the battle cry oh, yeah. of, of many, um, we could say, restorationist Christians uh, over the past 150 years or so, really stemming back to... Um, at, the, at the latest, I would say the second great awakening, that sort of battle cry becomes really, really mm. common. Um, I don't need no stinking creed. I don't need any tradition. I don't need what Christians mm-hmm. in the past have said. Just give me the Bible. That was good enough for the early church. That's good enough for me. Uh, so what do we do with that? How do we respond uh, to such a thought? Well, I once heard a pastor respond to this call, no creed but Christ, no law but love, you know, and he says, well, that's a very nice creed you have there. (laughs) And um, I think that he's exactly right. Yeah. uh, We're going to develop dogmas uh, and um, uncompromising positions on certain things. Uh, A community does that. And so I'll often tell people who are a little bit worried about the place the confessions hold in our denomination and in our church that every church has filters through which they view scripture mm-hmm. even and um, and the world and we try to be really honest and clear about about what those are and so some people even could hear me say that and be very alarmed it's as if um, as if the creed becomes the filter through which we view the Bible um, I don't think that that's necessarily the case but it does mean that that the confession, a Belgian confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Apostles' Creed, Canons of Dort, that they help us stay focused on what the main parts of the Bible are. Hmm. So, for um, here's a great example of that: um, is how important is a very precise eschatology for uh, preaching and the Christian life? Hmm. Um, the confessions mention uh eschatological sorts of things uh and uh that's an important thing to consider when reading scripture is where is all of this headed what's the telos of scripture but given the focus of the confessions on forgiveness of sins salvation through christ 
the finished work of Christ, the perfect mediating work of Jesus, um, the glory of God and his providence, um, the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to know Christ and do what is good, that it seems to be that those are the parts of Scripture that we really need to be going back to time and time and time again, and that's much of the Bible, of course. Um, And so therefore, 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't become the super text over all other texts that must be understood um, and preached on constantly, or, or the book of Revelation becomes the the super, yeah. you know, book of the Bible. It's like the, it almost That's becomes right. a uh, canon within a canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that the, the creeds and confessions help us to avoid that mostly, but um, being re- also at the same time cognizant that there are parts of the Bible that we should come back. It's okay mm-hmm. that I've preached from John 3 and Romans 8 more than I have preached from mm-hmm. uh, certain chapters in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Um, yeah, so the, the creeds and confessions, what I hear you saying is that they highlight yeah. the proper proportion hmm. in which certain things in, that the Bible teaches are, you could say, more important yeah. than other things. And the Bible says that about itself. Yeah. Well, often I've been reminding people That's of true. this in That's 1 Corinthians true. 15, what I passed on to you is of first importance that Christ died for our sins yeah. according to the scriptures. And so, so there's a ranking happening there in Paul's yeah. thinking. He ranks certain things more fundamental and more foundational than other things. Yeah, and so that sounds like a filter, but yeah. um, I think it's just being honest that everyone is going to emphasize certain parts of scripture. Mm-hmm. And so we try to do what the Bible says in emphasizing the most important parts that it's telling us to emphasize. Yeah. And then that's what is reflected in say the Heidelberg catechism. Yeah. And part of the idea here, part of the, I think assumption, at least that I have when it comes to creeds and confessions and so on, is that the spirit guides the church. Mm-hmm. That is a promise that I think Jesus makes, uh, particularly in the farewell discourse of the book of John. Um, and in chapter 16, talks about the spirit guiding the disciples and those who will follow in their footsteps into all truth. Um, this means a lot of things. I think one of the things that it, we could say that it means is that the spirit will be with the church. And we don't have to only base this idea on John 16. Uh, this is sort of just basic biblical ecclesiology 101. Hmm. The spirit will abide with the church. And if that's the case, as the church continues on into the post-apostolic period, the Spirit's going to be with the church. And so as the church is listening to Scripture and debating about Scripture's meaning and sense with hundreds of, of church leaders, even thousands of Christians around the Christian world at the time, as they're listening to what Scripture means, I think that's that's a better indicator of what Scripture is saying than if my, me mm. and myself, just me alone with my Bible, <laughs> is trying to read. Um, so the idea that, that the early church talks about the Trinity, that they, that they get this, this technical, doctrinal uh, thing really, really accurately proposed in the creeds, um, that, they, that they work it out, they explain it, they... Um, and it goes over the f- first few centuries. The Apostles' Creed, they say, was probably second century, uh, the Nicene Creed in the early fourth century, and then it's sort of updated in the late fourth century. Mm. The Athanasian Creed comes, I think, in the fifth century, um, maybe even in the sixth century. Um, so the church is working through these issues, and it's this sort of represents thousands of, of faithful mm. Christians listening to Scripture. Mm-hmm. And trying to work out what it says in a very, very faithful way. Um, and I think that this is through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, who is working with the church. And as John 10 says, Jesus says in John 10, my sheep will hear my voice. Um, so I, I think that just a baseline idea here is that I would rather listen to what thousands of Christians have said and agreed to than to just what I myself uh, could say and agree to. Um, and so that is sort of one of the mm. the crucial reasons for creeds and confessions is that it helps us listen to Scripture better in community with other faithful Christians and not just taking our own word for it. Yeah, and uh, to use uh, another 
maybe two examples of that. One very extreme and almost silly to prove the point, but the other, maybe a little bit more closer to home, is there's a homeless man in Ripon here. Um, hmm. And when you run into Larry, the homeless man, he is going to tell you the worst thing happening in Ripon right now is kids getting tattoos. Hmm. And so a tattoo is the mark of the devil. All these tattooed people <laughs> are going to rise up and go to Jerusalem and fight the people of God there. And so it's crazy. It's totally mm-hmm. crazy. But to his point, um, you know, the Bible does seem to mention tattoos a little bit. And he <laughs> thinks it's the worst thing in the whole world. It's has got the proportion wrong. Yeah, so the proportion is way off. And that's what I always tell him. I say, yeah. Larry, I'd rather talk to you about Christ and the forgiveness of our sins and yeah. and how, you know, there's there's life in Christ, both now and, and in heaven and in the new creation, that's, it seems to me, the the main message of yeah. Scripture. And um, and he, he perceives that as, oh, you're soft on tattoos. <laughs> and, and <laughs> so, so you're soft on Scripture then. That's, yeah, that that's, be, that's what that gets elevated. Exactly. And so that's a almost a silly example. Um, hmm. But it does go to show uh, how, where things can go without sort of a confessional understanding of what the Bible says is important. Now, Another would be how important are political things. Hmm. Uh, so can a person be, can lean towards socialism mm-hmm. and be a yeah. Christian? That's a good question. Well, there's, there's nothing in the creeds and confessions <laughs> that, um, uh, although uh, maybe the, civil, the role of the civil government in the Belgic Confession would, um, would limit yeah, would the, uh, the amount that government should be responsible to do. However, I think that you could profess the Belgic Confession in England right now, which is a more socialist-leaning nation. I, I personally am not a fan of hard socialism, Me neither. But, um, <laughs> but neither do I want to make that into a supra-confessional matter. Mm-hmm. And um, I think certainly a lot of people do. There's a lot of worry and concern mm-hmm. that our own state or our own nation is is just going to fall into socialism. Um, and the assumption there is, I don't know if we could be Christians in a nation like that. Hmm. Well, you read the creeds and confessions that you'll be just fine. And now <laughs> there will be some things that could be a little bit more difficult for Christians to get government jobs, for example, but hmm. um, I think it'll be okay. And the, the confessions help tie us to the mast a little bit yeah. um, for our worries hmm. when when we see things going like we don't want them to to go Hmm. that is really interesting um you said also something about how some people that you have talked with um in ministry in the past have been a little bit uh doubtful um of the place or skeptical Mm. of the place of of confessions in the life of the church and i think we we would both agree that one of the reasons for this is sort of a robust uh, American sense of individualism mm-hmm. um, and particularly um, an individualism when it comes to making choices. We sort of think of ourselves as self-sovereign islands and so we get to choose whatever is best for us. We get to choose how to express ourselves through our clothing. We get to choose what kind of cars we drive or what kind of clothes we wear or what kind of food we eat, whatever it may be. Um, and so when it comes to a church, we we think we we get to choose what what church is the best church for us, and of course there's a, there's a sense in which that's inescapable. But what this means for spirituality in the American landscape is that the the individual is sovereign, mm. and so I must read the Bible for myself, decide what the Bible is saying, and then pick a church that is in line with what I think. Um, just today, I was listening to. Um, hmm. a podcast where they were, they were asking, it was the Ask N.T. Wright podcast, interesting podcast. It's interesting always to listen to N.T. Wright to see what he says. And hmm. uh, somebody asks, I have gone through a, this whole deconstruction thing and I used to go to a conservative non-denominational mega church, and now I've deconstructed my complementarianism. I've deconstructed my penal substitutionary atonement. I've deconstructed uh, biblical inerrancy and all of these things. And I don't believe them anymore, but I do believe some certain other things. And so what church should I go to? <laughs> um, N.T. Wright. That was the question. 
And so this person is determining what scripture says for themselves and then saying, okay, now, because I believe these new things, I got to find I'm a church. Right. I need to find exactly. other people who are right. <laughs> and so here you see, and this is in some sense inescapable. So I can, I can have sympathy with this person. I, I did the same sort of thing and, and beginning to really study theology for myself, to study scripture for myself. And then I made the jump into the reformed world. So, in some sense, this is deeply inescapable. This is just mm-hmm. the way things are in the mm-hmm. in the American Christian world, um, and really in the global Christian world, uh, more and more. But the idea here is that I am the arbiter of truth. I am the ultimate decider for myself of truth. And confessions sort of work against this. If you're growing up in a confessional church like ours, and you begin to have um, some doubts about certain things and the confessions are telling you one thing that can seem a little bit invasive. That can seem a little bit, mm. uh, even offensive that you have these, these sort of walls that are built up by past generations telling us what to believe today. Um, and some, in some sense, the confessions are very much that they are a witness to future generations about what has been argued about in the past mm. and what has been settled in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what confessions very much are. Um, and so it works against that individualistic tendency in our world. And I think that this is a good thing because we are st- we are too trusting of ourselves. Mm. Uh, we should listen to the past. We should listen to our forefathers um, and take in th- what the community says um, with high regard and not just trusting in our own personal sovereignty. Um would you, would you add yeah. anything to that? Is there anything that you Well, I mean, you combine say? that with anti-institutionalism. And so yeah. there is an individualism in American culture that is the highest virtue. And, well, maybe because of that, but alongside of it, there is an anti-institutional attitude. The, um, hmm. And some of, some of that is for good reason. So if somebody is saying... For example, I can't go to my Roman Catholic church in Boston anymore. Uh, yeah, they might have some pretty good reasons for that because mm. of the abuse scandal in the Boston diocese yeah. of um, of Roman Catholic churches of, of children. I mean, I, I would say somebody in that arena um, would have some good reasons to be mm. anti-institutional towards yeah. that institution in particular. Or... Um, universities would be another example where there's a lot of distrust right now among Christians of secular universities. And for some good reason, there is a distrust because um, there are many openly anti-Christian professors who make that a part of their sociology class or their hmm. uh, literature class or something. It's uh, it becomes sort of just like a not-so-veiled critique of... Um, are of, of a lot of things that Christians should value. And so sometimes anti-institutional uh, rhetoric has a place um, that just blindly trusting the government or the yeah. university or, or a, a denomination can be a good, or it can be a dangerous thing to, to blindly trust it. But, yeah. um, but at the same time, we should recognize that there is much individualistic opposition to institutions that is not healthy. Um, just like as you were saying there, um, seeing oneself as the ultimate judge instead of enjoying being surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses who speaks into our lives. Yeah. And um, and so the point of Hebrews 11 is not just that you would look at these faithful people, but that you would continue to see, wow, and the faith of Abraham and Rahab and um, and Noah, that faith is present in our world today too, among yeah. faithful people who are trusting in the Lord for things yet unseen, and I can trust them too. Mm-hmm. That That's why it concludes with, and we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses yeah. in that chapter. And so, um, so I think uh, that anti-institution... I mean that's certainly we talked we joked a little bit as we started about Ripon. Ripon is a very <laughs> anti-institutional hmm. culture in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of suspicion. I mean, we're in California. We're a politically conservative town, generally yeah. speaking. 
went with Governor Newsom as our governor, and so hmm. a lot of the talk that I hear is very anti-government, um, yeah. very suspicious of motives, and sometimes for good reason, but sometimes because of, well, individualistic, maybe selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. So I think we that's writ large maybe in the American church, and um, when people are told that they would, uh, are told about a confession, um, they bristle at that a little bit. Um, because of that individualistic anti-institutional instinct. Yeah, it's interesting. Ripon, Ripon, I think, does brand itself as a conservative town. Maybe it's more libertarian than conservative. Yeah, and those two things true. are are very much they they get confused. I'm not saying you can you've confused it here, but I think a lot of people don't mm. realize that anti-institutionalism is really not a value of conservative political theory, but. <laughs> that's not what this podcast we'll do a is whole about. On it, yeah. <laughs> we could uh we'll come back around we'll to get that some someday. some political uh, some constitution <laughs> teachers to come and help us understand yeah, yeah. um but yeah, uh you know i i really like how that's contrasted with a confessional identity um so i found yeah. this quote i was just listening to the first things podcast today actually and it's a new episode based on um Carl Truman's article that he just released on First Things, which is getting a lot of hmm. attention, called um, Failure of the Evangelical Elites. So the article is uh, critical of sort of the, the higher-ups of evangelicalism um, trying to appeal in a world to a worldly hmm. um, apparatus and gain some attention, whether that's through um, other universities or... Um, Time Magazine or New York Times or whatever to, to have appeal in those arenas while also trying to be lightly mm-hmm. evangelical. Um, and so basically he's saying what we need is more confessional grounding to help um, people at the very top all the way down to just the regular Christian um, understand our place in church history, in yeah. culture, and so the quote that I have from from this podcast that uh, Carl Truman didn't even write this, even though it's a great sentence, um, he said, a lot of evangelical Protestants don't have a firm ecclesiastical grounding. And I think that's absolutely true. I think that that is the result of the Jesus and me attitude um, yep. that you hear in a lot of churches. Uh, it's just you and the Bible, just pick up your Bible and, and go for it and and understand it however it makes you feel is what you should go with for your interpretation. Um, And so he's saying, he's criticizing that there there isn't grounding. He says we lack a sense of church history, a sense of ecclesial identity, a commitment to traditional confessional trajectory that provides some kind of stability or continuity with the past. And he says he thinks that this renders us more vulnerable to social pressures. And I love this part. He says, it renders us more vulnerable to go along with social pressure or to react excessively to social pressures. And so hmm. confessionalism is not necessarily a moderate position. Um, hmm. and, and so it, it doesn't say, oh, uh, some people are going with the sexual revolution. They're just totally on board. And then there's all these culture warriors over here, and we're just in the middle because we're confessional. I don't think that's what he's saying <laughs> no, at all. That's a good point. That's a good um, distinction. And but he is saying, what are we re- what are we called to react against most strongly? Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Scripture would call us to react strongly against certain things about, say, the sexual revolution, and maybe not so strongly against other things. And, and you, you see this mm-hmm. in Reformed theology where, um, you know, there is uh, a strong reaction traditionally against um, hardcore feminism, which really seeks to posit men against women. Mm-hmm. And the way that we react to that, which could be excessive, is to say, no, it's a, it's, it's a man's world, you know? Mm-hmm. like um, You see a lot of broadly evangelical people saying that sort of thing. Yeah, it's sort of a, a machismo uh, yeah. reaction. But uh, the biblical reaction is to say, okay, well, maybe there has been some in- injustices done against women, and yeah. and let's think about that critically. Um, but uh, I think the confessionally minded person will be more broadly uh, Christian. 
just and looking at Christianity yeah, throughout think, the world. You can think through it in a more theological way because the confession will tell you about things like the Imago Dei and what that right. means for yeah. a man and a woman. And you will be grounded and think, no, I shouldn't react against feminism by becoming a meninist, yeah, uh, becoming right, a, a masculinist, chauvinist. Yeah, right. a chauvinist. Yeah. Um, not to say we can't, we can't be masculine. We sh- men should be masculine. Um, but, but yeah, that's exactly right. I think they give us a ballast mm-hmm. in the storm. And so our ship is not flipped to the one side or flipped to the other side. We are, we are able to, to, to keep going forward. Um, it gives us a sort of anchor. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a really good quote from, from Carl Truman. He said that out loud. Yeah, that's, he just man, spoke he's, it. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> on, he was on fire. And, and so a, a, another, to put it an example of this, uh, uh, so a woman wants to work outside the home. Mm-hmm. You know, she's married, she has kids, she, she's going to get a job. I think that there's a lot of evangelical reaction to that. Oh, since we don't like feminism, you shouldn't go do that. Yeah. But it's like, I think the confessionally minded person, there's nothing in the confessions that, that really no. covers this very specifically. But I yeah, think no. um, the confessionally minded person has sort of submitted themselves to the broader uh, church um, hmm. and, and instead of the local culture, which hmm. um, again, in, in our rip and culture, I would say there's still a value for women to be a homemaker, to stay at home and mm-hmm. take care of the kids. And so that, that could even, sounds crazy to people outside of this, but could be a controversial thing, even mm-hmm. in our culture. But the confessionally minded person could say, no, you know, that that's not like a make or break issue yeah. in, in in the life of the, this family. Um, there could be a wis- some wisdom involved in how that yeah. should be done. Um, totally. Especially if there's children involved, there should be some wisdom applied. But um, I think that what Truman is getting to is that cultural like where culture becomes the arbiter of how we read the bible and how we understand mm-hmm. how people should relate to each other instead of um, scripture or the church more broadly yeah in that sense it sort of reminds me of c.s lewis's argument of mere christianity particularly in, in his introduction to athanasius's on the incarnation which is like a five-page tiny little preface to that book but he talks about the the fresh sea breeze of the mm-hmm. centuries flowing mm-hmm. through our minds. And if we can see what Christianity has looked like in other places, cultures, contexts, locations, and times, then we can have a better understanding for what, what really is essential and what's really not exactly essential. And so the issue you have a woman working outside the home, a mother working outside the home, um, is it really essential? Is it something that is so, it's a hill to die on yeah. that the confessions talk about? probably not um and so we should maybe hold that a little bit more openly yeah um can we still debate it sure can we talk about the wisdom involved yeah totally but is it something we should take a hard line stance on probably not yeah and so i i would say um there is an ethos to confessionalism that's kind of that's what i'm really trying to get at here is um we're not just talking about the the letter of the law, hmm. the the content of the confessions, which is worthy of discussion, but there is an ethos to reformed confessionalism hmm. that will value what what we believe Scripture most values, hmm. and so um, yeah, whether that's in uh, political uh, understandings of the role of government or. Uh, you see this a lot in our very thick culture. We have a very, mm. a very specific cultural milieu that we serve in, yeah. and um, at times we can say, "Yeah, that is something really good that we should hold to," because Scripture just calls us to protect the life of the unborn. That is so clear. Mm-hmm. One more quick thing I'll say in regards to the importance of confessions is that they buffer us from very charismatic leaders, and I don't mm. mean charismatic like Pentecostal, but. Um, I've seen enough documentaries on cults over the years. This is a, a fascinating part of my life, I guess. I love to sit and waste time on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever watching interesting cult documentaries, uh, particularly of Christian cults that have formed in mm-hmm. the past hundred or so years. Mm. Um, it's just really <laughs> interesting to me how these things happen and how people are so susceptible to being 
sucked into these sort of things. Yeah. I mean, how these cults go really bad, often in really sexual ways where the leader is having, basically has a harem of wives Mm -hmm. and people think that this is the godly righteous thing to do. It's really insane to me. And Mm -hmm. creeds, one important thing that creeds do is that they give us a sense of, because they give us a sense of what scripture is saying, they buffer us. And so a quote that I'll share from, a historian named Alistair McGrath, uh, he he writes this, rediscovering the corporate and historic nature of the Christian faith reduces the danger of entire communities of faith being misled by charismatic individuals and affirms the ongoing importance of the Christian past as a stabilizing influence Mm. in potentially turbulent times. Tradition is like a filter, which allows us to identify suspect teachings immediately. And so creeds and confessions guard us against this sort of thing. Um, It helps us to have that sort of steadiness uh, in our Christian walk um, where we're not always being prone to what the the hip or the really powerful pastor or leader is saying. But it gives it gives then in that sense a sense it gives a it gives the laity a, a ballast for not being deceived by by clergy. Uh, by those who would proclaim themselves leaders of the church. And so that is another highly important function of the creeds. Yeah, I like it. Um, and that's a powerful force, char- charisma. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm often, like like you said, I'm intrigued and surprised by how quickly people will go, to, will move towards the charismatic leader Um hmm. Maybe I'm surprised because I'm not the most charismatic leader, and so uh, <laughs> I, you know, I see that happening in in um, lots of other contexts, and I often think, you know, um, what what is the appeal there? Uh, maybe I'm not yeah. as, as attracted by that personality type as hmm. lots of other people are, um, but people generally just seem to eat charisma up with a knife fork and spoon when they see it they just got to be near it and um yeah and so the confessions are are an interesting antidote to that um totally and it's partly it's interesting because it's kind of the opposite of that charisma it's it's like using your mind and having to sit just sit yeah. and think through it's boring um, it's not flashy it's not ten commandments. sexy to use the fun word that everybody uses yeah it's just like let's just think about the ten commandments or the apostles yeah. creed and that is what a christian should be more focused on than um, cool is my pastor an exciting person yeah you know to uh to listen to you know, talk about their life or something. So yeah. uh, it, it's a really interesting um, contrast, I would say, a confessional church that is rooted in church history and scripture itself versus the non-confessional church that is very dependent on the leader. Mm. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I think the reason people are so prone to that is a sense, I think uh, evangelicals over the past 50 or so years um, have developed a sort of embarrassment complex where we're so embarrassed of our faith. Mm, yeah. um, we're embarrassed to be, you know, to be connected to those those Trump voters over there that we have to, um, or we're embarrassed to, to, to be, you know, known for being racists or whatever, that we have to push and follow the really cool people mm. in their leadership um, so we can show ourselves to be with the times, yeah. to be really... You know we're cool, we're hip, we're with it, we get it, um, and so there's and that, that, that embarrassment complex crops up a lot. I know so many people are just so embarrassed. And tr- are there things that are shameful about the evangelical tradition? Yes. Yeah. Um, do we need to be embarrassed by everything so that we follow the cool people? No. We should. Yeah. We should think about the Christian faith in a deeper way, um, and I think that would. That's what leads us to creeds and confessions. So um, along those lines, I think it's, uh, it's, it's great, I th- would even say it is cool, when uh, a church, when a church um, openly teaches the Heidelberg Catechism and um, openly professes the Apostles' Creed during worship, it's a very countercultural thing. 
Um, I can't really <laughs> think of other contexts where people read aloud in public, where they read something out loud together. Um, hmm. It's a little bit like taking an oath, I guess, like when I went to serve jury duty. And um, I, I believe all of us prospective jurors had to raise our hand and commit to tell the truth in how we were responding to some of the judge's questions. But that's about the only other, so that was an oath. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's the only other context I can think of where, where people speak out loud together. And so I think it's cool. And I've actually heard from some people who are newer to our church and from a more um, non-denominational background that it's kind of exciting actually and refreshing to them that they profess a faith with other people out loud um, and just how, how rarely that would happen. Um, even uh, lately in our church, I've had people say a scripture text, part hmm. of it out loud. If it's like, uh, there's one verse I just want us to read all out loud together. Or a couple hmm. weeks ago when I was preaching on creation, we read the end of a Q&A from the catechism out loud together. And you know, I look up after reading these this out loud, and I can see that people are emotionally moved to say those things out loud in church. Hmm. Um, and so that's one of the uses, I think, of the confessions is that we would say them out loud with one another. Um, when I teach catechism, we're going to read Q&A 1 every week before we start just to try to memorize it and to say those things out loud, hmm. Q&A 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And um, there's a real powerful unity that comes um, yeah. in just speaking words of faith together. So, Yeah, I think that reminds me of Protestant worship in general. Mm. Um, looking back to the Reformation and how the reform of worship t- took place in the Lutheran and Anglican and Reformed congregations throughout Europe, is that they were restoring worship to the people, letting the people be real participants in worship, mm-hmm. often by having them say those sorts of things out loud and how that was such a binding thing. And so, yeah, how do we use confessions and creeds in the life of the church? Um, one of the ways is by figuring out ways for them to be a part of the regular weekly worship. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be maybe the, the, the most uh important way to, to sort of, I guess you could say, to use a more recent term, to normalize them, um, to to show that we're not embarrassed by these things, but actually we're quite proud and we find that they um, are very, very useful and we love our tradition, we hold to it, and so we teach it. Um, I, I, I know for me, coming into the Reformed tradition, one of the best things that I found was the creeds and the confessions. And finding that sort of ballast and being able to read the Heidelberg Catechism for myself. It doesn't take very long. Mm -hmm. If you were to do it, yes, it's 129 questions and answers, but they're all very short. Uh, It would take an hour or two at the most, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And you would get a very good overview of what Reformed theology is all about uh, and what it is getting at. You could also read, yeah, the Belgic Confession. I love the Belgic Confession. Uh, the Canons of Dort, which are more pointed on the issues of, of predestination and salvation mm-hmm. uh, from a Reformed perspective. So personal study, those those are really helpful sorts of things. Um, I, I really love my Reformation study Bible from Ligonier because it has these things all in the Bible itself. So that's a good, it's a good resource to have. Or, of course, you could just find these things online for free. Um, and mm-hmm. study them, and you will get a really solid grounding uh, of what of what Reformed Christians believe, and that is extremely, extremely helpful. You put down on our, our doc here, Mark, um, something about family devotions. Uh, how do you use these in family devotions? Well, um, we typically just read through a book of the Bible, but I know of two families um, <laughs> that have read through the Heidelberg Catechism just each day after dinner. Yeah. Um, they just look at a Q&A of the Catechism and are trying to to be really rooted in that. And hmm. so it's it's devotional material. I mean... Yeah. Um, you wouldn't so, think it would be with the name of like the Heidelberg the Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the Heidelberg is, is particularly helpful in that regard. I would say it would be the most helpful. Hmm. Um, even the 
Westminster Confession of Faith would would be helpful, but <laughs> that they're different. They're catechisms of different natures. Uh, I would say the Heidelberg is meant to introduce in a lot of ways and just give basics, whereas the Westminster, particularly on something like the Ten Commandments, is very exhaustive, um, long hmm. lists of sins that yeah. would be included or excluded by um, the Fourth Commandment, for example. <laughs> and so um, devotionally speaking, um, the Heidelberg being great, um, in terms of study, so like if a minister is preaching on the Ten Commandments, you got to use the Westminster Catechism because mm. you're going to have all your applications <laughs> almost nailed for you because yeah. the the Westminster just gives so much um, grounding and example. Particularly for, the larger catechism, yeah, Westminster larger. Right, um, for, for each of the Ten Commandments. So um, so that would be one way to use them is, would be for family devotions and particularly the Heidelberg Catechism for that. Um, the New City Catechism, I've heard of families using that for, mm. for, for their devotions with little kids, um, which I think is a really neat idea. Um, some people might might scoff at that a little bit because it's not the Bible itself, but I would guess many of those very same people read other non-biblical devotional material, and so I don't see how that's, uh, if well, anything, the catechism yeah. would be more faithful. Than that's the case. Max All these Lucado. catechisms always have footnotes for the scriptures that are being referenced yeah. by the answers, so if you just wanted to follow those footnotes and read those passages well there you go you'd be having the best of both worlds (laughs) yeah so um and another uh way of using the catechism is uh, when i was going into the prison and they would hear i'm a reformed pastor some of the guys who had been christians for a while well what is that all about and i'm a catechism well here's what we believe Hmm. um and there there it is why should infants also be baptized and Mm -hmm. um a lot of really hmm. simple straightforward instruction about our beliefs it's a, a really nice accessible introduction to the reformed faith so yeah so um, yeah so some people are really cautioned and alarmed by calvinism but then i think they would look <laughs> at the heidelberg catechism which is calvinistic of course yeah and they would say oh i believe this mm-hmm. um and even their Q and A on infant baptism is very understandable, very accessible to yeah. to the pedo Baptist person. Okay, well, you believe they're a part of God's covenant, no less than adults. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, so that's a it's a lot. It's a, that's a very theological answer, com- yeah. compacted into a very short statement. Yeah. So could somebody say, "Oh, well, it's oversimplified." Sure, but that's kind of the point is for it to be simple mm-hmm. so you can memorize it. But is there a lot to it? Oh, yeah. And if you if you wanted to critique the catechism, you can go and read Zacharias or Sinus's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a pretty large book, and you could mm. dig in more there. Uh, but, yeah, those are great uses of the, the creeds and confessions and catechisms yeah. in the church. Maybe f- just for a fun question here at the end of the episode now, uh we in the CRC hold to what's called the three forms of unity, which is uh, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. Um, those are our confessional standards or formula, you could say. Outside of those three, Mark, what are your favorite confessions uh, or, or creeds? Outside of those three? Yeah, we'll go with outside of those three. Well, I like the Nicene Creed a lot. Um, yeah. I always remind people in our church if you are talking with a mormon or jehovah's witnesses bring out the nicene creed it is so strong on hmm. the the homo usios, the the same nature or the same essence yeah. of of christ uh the son and the father and so um that i love it for that reason it's yeah. uh, you know true god from true god begotten hmm. not made of the same essence as the father is just so helpful um, that that is an ancient uh, mm-hmm. confession of the church and a delineating mark between true Christianity and an imitation. Yeah, it's so helpful for that. But then obviously you have Q and A one of the Westminster, <laughs> and uh, that's where one. that's where most people I would say if they're familiar with any Reformed confession. Um, mm. not in the Christian Reformed Church, not in Continental Confessionalism, would probably be familiar with Q&A 1 of the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man or the, the purpose of human life to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Mm. So um, to me, that 
really sings. It's, uh, yeah. it, it preaches. It, it's helpful for grounding all of our understanding of ourselves and of God. It's about his glory. So. This is a fun ongoing debate. What's better, Heidelberg, yeah. Heidelberg 1 or Westminster Q&A 1? Um, yeah, they're both great. So They both cover different ground. They do. You could argue that the Westminster is more theocentric, mm-hmm. um, although I'm not so sure about that. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so what about you? What anything? Yeah, stand outside out of the three forms, it's tough. There, people don't often hear about how many Reformed confessions came out of the Reformation, there's a lot. Mm. Um, the ones that are still in uh, in use of churches and in ongoing living denominations and traditions are really just the three forms and Westminster. I don't really know of any others. Maybe there's some small European reformed churches, perhaps in Switzerland or Hungary um, or Poland that use other ones. But um, I do really love the Second Helvetic Confession if we want to get really into the weeds here. <laughs> I really love that because it's, uh, I think, one of the best expressions of the Reformed faith and of uh, a very, I don't know, thoughtful, balanced Reformed faith uh, written by Heinrich Bollinger in Switzerland. Uh, But it's not really in use by any denomination that I'm aware of today. Um, And of course, as I've said earlier on this podcast, there's things about Anglicanism I really like. So I like the 39 Articles of Faith and I find them to be a very simplistic in a good way. Uh, expression of the Christian faith, um, particularly on sola, sola fide, um, and even on predestination. I really like what they have to say. Mm. Um, some people would argue that the three, 39 articles are a little bit tight-lipped on certain things and don't go far enough. Mm. That was, of course, the problem, according to the Puritans who wrote the Westminster. Uh, they, were gonna, they were trying to write an updated version of the 39 articles, mm. but ended up just kind of, kind of scrapping it and going with the whole, whole new uh, standard of faith, which is the Westminster standards. Um, but I like the 39 articles and the second Helvetic, but I, man, I really do love the Belgic confession. Uh, it's been fun. We're Mark is preaching through it, uh, in our evening services, uh, currently. And it's been really, really enjoyable reading it again each week and hearing his thoughts on it. Um, there's a lot that I love, in the Belgic Confession. I think it's also an extremely balanced and well thought out uh, definition of the Christian faith. Yeah. Well, and uh, on that note, uh, I think it would be good to conclude by encouraging you not only to pick up a confession. Um, if you have been a Christian for a really long time, really any of the confessions would be accessible. Don't let somebody discourage you, even from reading something like the Canons of Dort. Um, I love hmm. how uh, the canons of Dort have such a high view of God, and that's what you are going to hear. Hmm. They're also very practical. The canons of Dort has a, a an article about what happens to the children of believers who die in infancy. So um, the, the ch- when a child dies in infancy, the question is, is a covenant child? Well, that person can be assured that uh, it is by God's grace that the child would be a part of the covenant and so very practical, mm. extremely yeah. practical in that yeah. regard. Um, and you're going to find gems like that through the Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort, and the more familiar Heidelberg Catechism as well. But um, hopefully this launches you also into Scripture study. We never want to come mm. off as as confessionalists um, over and above Christian. Um, yeah, and uh, And I think that... Uh, when you're reading good confessions, you're going to be inspired to find scriptural connections. Hmm. Um, often the confession includes language that's right out of scripture anyways. And so um, it, it will, I hope, increase one's faith in the Lord and his word yeah. um, and not one's faith in church history, for example. Yeah, definitely. Um, so... I think that that maybe is where I would want to conclude is is to actually read these things. To, if you're looking for devotional material as a family, to pick up the Heidelberg Catechism. You could buy it on Amazon for like eight bucks, um, and and to go through it, and and hmm. and learn together uh, what the basics of our faith really are. 
Yeah, the scripture is the main thing, of course. And so we hold to the Latin phrase, Ecclesia Reformata et Sipper Reformanda, which means the church reformed and always being reformed, mm-hmm. reformed according to scripture, not according to the waves of every wind of doctrine being tossed to and fro. So yep. uh, in that regard, grace and peace with you to be with you guys. And we, we ask that you celebrate the Reformation this week and pick up a catechism or a confession and, and read it and read along with Scripture with whatever footnotes you may find. And we ask that you, or we hope that you would be encouraged by what, what you've heard and that we'll, we'll be with you again next week. Let's see ya.